Well, as uh, those of you who have been here before know, I try to at least give a part of the last conference to answering questions, and there are some questions that have come in here, so <clears throat> I'm going to have to move right along. I generally try to say too much, cover too much ground during these conferences, and I apologize for that, and often more in a theological way than a devotional way, which is not necessarily the best approach either. But, um, you know, when we're talking about the road to hell being paved with good intentions, uh, what do we mean by that? I mean, that's a very common saying. You've all heard it before. It can be understood correctly and incorrectly. You say, well, the intentions actually being good, that's pretty much, imp that's very important, right? You, you have to have good intentions, at least that to start with. So does that mean it's bad to have good intentions? And the saying doesn't mean it's bad to have good intentions. What it actually means is that good intentions are never enough. You have to have more than good intentions just to save your soul. And again, I mean, this involves, again, the virtue of uh, prudence, as I mentioned. That's a very essential point. Because prudence is the driver of your chariot. It has to be the driver of your chariot. It's the charioteer of the virtues that you have that enable you to act upon your faith and your hope and your charity. You see, we have the example of our Lord who set for us the tone that you and I should take toward the difficulties of life. Okay, we're, when we're talking about prudence, we're talking about a virtue that especially comes into play when things are difficult. I mean, when things are very simple and straightforward, we don't really have to plan much. We don't have to uh, uh, you know, devise means and methods of accomplishing our purposes. It doesn't get complicated because the obstacles aren't there. But when the obstacles are there to actually live our faith, our hope, and our charity, we really need prudence to show us the way to do this in such a way that we actually accomplish the good purpose and don't cause more harm. How many things in our own lives are there that actually seem like thorny problems? How many of us here have things going on in our lives that seem not only difficult, but apparently, humanly, almost impossible to solve. And most of those things involve involvement with other people, often with people we love. <clears throat> and we ask ourselves, well, how do I actually approach this? <clears throat> it's not just a matter of, well, how do I use this tool, or how do I... How do I, you know, affect this, this purpose? How do I lay out plans for a treehouse for my kids? Or how do I fix this, this broken pipe? No, 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 the thorniest problems are not those. Uh, the thorniest problems are when you're dealing with another person who has a will of his or her own. And um, not only do you love this person, but maybe you and this other person love others too, and you have an influence over their lives, and you're trying to negotiate all of this 
in such a way that it turns out right. I mean, are really the most difficult problems and involve these things. Not only our own shortcomings and dealing with ourselves and trying to get ourselves on the right track and to do the right things, but when it comes to trying to motivate others and influence others to do the right thing, then we know it's very difficult. Well, you're experiencing in a sense, but God himself experiences too, because he having given us free will has to go through these various steps i mentioned the gifts and i mentioned the graces that comes through the gifts for the virtues and so on and our lord does not compel us to love him and will not compel us to go to heaven and you see in our lord's own life the anxiety you might say yes a human anxiety as a human soul there's no doubt about it he felt anxiety he felt anxiety before the sufferings of the cross, but he also felt anxieties for you and me. I mean, there's a reason why our Lord openly wept on occasion. He was moved by sorrow at the, the thought of our damnation. And so uh, we realize that our Lord himself understood this. Uh, the, what we're going through, and, and the well, in some cases it might even be considered kind of a, not only a trauma, but an agony. Because we, we love and yet we fear the loss of those we love and um, the loss to those we love of the greatest prize of all everlasting life. How much does a parent, you might say, agonize over the matter of his children and their lives, their salvation? So how much does a father agonize over that his own, his own children? We can't forget that our Lord, in fact, has a heart, which is the heart of God, but it's also the heart of a man. It's not just the heart of man, it is the heart of a man. Our Lord Jesus Christ has the heart of a man. And he loves. He loves with a man's love. And you know, that's not the same as a woman's love. Men and women do not love the same way. They both love very deeply, yes they do, but they don't love the same way. They don't love each other the same way. They don't love their children the same way. Men and women love differently. And um, actually, it's a good thing they do because God produced these, these loves, these hearts of a father and a mother in order to love differently. You see these, this love in God, which is a comprehensive love. You see, God loves us in such a way that he created us with free will. And so that tells you something, that God wants us to be able, in a sense, to stand on our own two feet and answer for ourselves. He wants us to come to the point where we're responsible for ourselves. That's kind of like a father's love, really. Now, a mother's love is designed to protect ordinarily. A mother's love is meant to protect a life that depends upon her. And it's hard for a mother to have the child grow away from her and get his or her own life with hers or her own loves. I mean, living birth is one thing, but having that separation later in life where the son or the daughter goes off and finds their own life and their own loves and so on, that's even more traumatic in some ways. But so, you know, God has this love in him where he does have this protective love. There's no doubt about it. And he expresses that protective love in so many ways, among them guardian angels, which I want to talk about 
hopefully I won't run out of time to do that. But he expresses that protective love through the guardian angels. But God also has that love with, which motivated him to create us with free will, to want us also to not be independent of him. No, 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 not be independent of him. But nonetheless, to be able to accept responsibility for ourselves too. So God has this perfect, infinitely perfect blend of what we distinguish in the way a mother loves and the way a father loves. But our Lord's heart is no doubt the heart of a man. And uh, he loves definitely as a man loves, humanly speaking, he certainly does. And uh, that is why, I mean, he could accept those who walked away from him without chasing after them and trying to convince them, please, please don't leave me. He, he saw that they had a choice to make, and he left them free to make that choice when they walked away from him because they wouldn't accept the promise of the Blessed Sacrament. Um, now, we see our Lord setting this example for us of prudence. You see, his goal in coming was to accomplish the will of his Father. He actually had two objectives, and the two objectives have to do with his great loves. Our Lord loves, most of all, the Father from whom he came. When we talked about the Father generating the Son, the first great love of the Son is his Father. It has been that way for all eternity. It will that be, be that way for all eternity. The first great love of the Son is for his Father. And time and time again, our Lord talked about that. He talked about how he came to do the will of the Father. He came to do the will of the Father. It was everything that motivated him. But our Lord is also motivated by a love for us. This is where God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Ghost united in their common love for us as creatures. And uh, they wanted to retrieve us because they could. But the way that they would have to retrieve us was to redeem us, and that would require a sacrifice that only God himself could make. So God would have to put himself in a position where he could make a sacrifice for us to redeem us from our sins. And the Son of God made that sacrifice, willingly, lovingly. Uh, he even talked about how he longed for that to sit down with him at the table. That night of the Last Supper, he longed for that moment. And that was out of love, you know. And then the dread of it all came upon him. But again, nothing turned him back because his love always overcame the dread. That's how great his love is. So on the cross, our Lord was able to satisfy for the insult given to the Father. So that's what our Lord did on the cross. The first thing he did was he actually satisfied for the insult that our sins caused to his Father. That's what our, the first thing our Lord had in mind, the most important thing that he came to do. He wanted to make reparation to the Father for the insights, insults that the sins of all mankind gave to him. But at the same time that our Lord did that, he also, through his act of obedience on the cross, undid our act of disobedience with original sin. He offset that. But now it wasn't just Adam, a creature, it was Jesus Christ, God, and man, who paid that price, who made that act of obedience. And so it had the power to redeem mankind, all men, every man, every man, woman, and child, for every sin, not only every sin committed, but for every sin possible. Because it was an act of an, an infinite loving will of the Son of God for his Son, for his Father, I should say. 
in reparation for the sins of mankind. So our Redeemer is not just a fellow man who wanted to do something to show God that we're really sorry and ask forgiveness and, and hope, hope that God would forgive. Our Redeemer is the Son of Man and the Son of God who offered an infinite sacrifice who has the right to expect and even to claim redemption and forgiveness because his sacrifice was an infinitely powerful sacrifice. And so the redemption, the sacrifice of our Lord on the cross actually required that, the redemption. It required that we were redeemed. It required that the sin was paid for because of the dignity, the nobility, the value of that sacrifice and who it was who was making the sacrifice. Nobody else could earn that. No one could deserve that. Only Christ could. It was owed to him. It was owed to him by the sacrifice on the cross that mankind would be redeemed and that he would be thus the ransomer, as it were, of the whole human race. And so it comes to him by right, by virtue of the fact that he's the son of God, become man and died on the cross for us. He is entitled to our redemption. And um, we call that de condigno. He was worthy of that. He was worthy of that, that purpose and that goal and that, that outcome, you might say, that result of the redemption. So you might say, well, okay, the Son of God comes to earth and he's here to fulfill the will of the God, Father. And he, he has, does he really have faith? Not really as you and I know it. Because as the Son of God, his faith, you might say, is overcome by his need for faith, is overcome by the beatific vision. Because as the Son of God, he actually had the beatific vision from the very first moment of his conception. His, his mind, it was his, his intellect was actually filled with that vision of the Father and, and the Blessed Trinity himself too, and his own divinity. Uh, the Son of God knew that perfectly. So he didn't need faith. And he didn't need hope, really, because, again, as the Son of God, he himself was not a sinner. He didn't need to be redeemed himself. And he knew what he had come to do, and he knew that what he was able to do would earn that redemption for you and me. So our Lord did not need the supernatural virtues of faith and hope because of who he is. But he, he did have the supernatural virtue of charity to that perfect degree, both as God and man. And you might say, well, does Jesus Christ actually use his will as God and man? Does he love as God and also as man at the same time? Does he have both loves? And the answer is yes. He loved you as God, and he also loved you as man. In fact, he still does in heaven. He loves you as God, and he loves you as man. He loves you as the Son of God, and he loves you as your Redeemer. Because as your Redeemer, he loves you as the Son of, the son of Man. So, um, this was a heresy that came up early in, this, in the course of the history that tried to sort of deactivate the human will of our Lord and make it nothing but sort of a decoration or an appendage that didn't have any power. But the fact is, our Lord as man did accept the cross 
Father, not my will, but thy will be done, is a very good statement of that fact. That as a human will, having a human will, our Lord had to exercise that human will and had to be willing to accept the cross. Again, out of love, human love, for you and me, as well as divine love. So you might say, okay, if that's the case, then how are we going to be able to look at the prudence of Jesus Christ and the way he carried out that mission of our redemption? How are we going to follow that example? I mean, here you have the Son of God as man who's setting an example of prudence. And how can we possibly follow that perfect divine prudence which prompted everything he said and the way he said it and when he said it and prompted his silence when he did not speak how can we imitate in any way the prudence of the son of god on earth in pursuing his way in the miracles he worked when he did them and how he did them <clears throat> that's a divine prudence God knows perfectly how to carry out his good plan. And is there any way possible that you and I can go through life and have this virtue of prudence to put into effect our faith and our hope and our charity and to do it in the right way? To know how we are to conduct ourselves according to our faith and our hope and our charity, but to do it in the right way. Not just to have good intentions, but to know how to bring those intentions to fruition. We have to use our actions. We have to use our words. We know how difficult that is for experience. We see that the virtue of prudence would enable us to use our reason, and a practical reason, because we have to use our reason to actually apply to do something not just think about it, it's not just theoretical or hypothetical, we actually have something we have to do, something we have to say, some action we have to take in order to put into practice our faith and our hope and our charity in this world that's going to affect not only our souls, but the souls of other people too. Now, prudence being this virtue that regulates or governs the other virtues such that if we don't have it, our justice isn't, isn't going to be just. We're going to make serious mistakes. We're going to be too rigorous in our justice, or we're going to be too lax in our justice, because with justice I can go overboard or underboard. I can have an excess or an, a defect of it. And so I need something to tell me, okay, you have the will to be just and to give to others what is due to them, but they deserve what they have a right to. But you're very fallible in knowing how to apply it. And you need something to, to rule that justice and make it turn out right. So it doesn't go off the rails. So you need a virtue that can actually govern justice to keep it on track. The same with my fortitude. Okay, I, I realize with my own fortitude, yes, I can be all kinds of brave. <clears throat> And bravery, uh, I mean, fortitude is a matter of regulating in me uh, or actually overcoming my fears. Uh, overcoming uh, my fears 
and uh, dealing with things that are hard for me. Um, having the courage to deal with these things in the right way at the right time to again to make things turn out right. Well, I realize that because of my imbecility due to sin, I can, and also my pride getting in the way, I can actually go off the rails. Again, my, my fortitude can lead me to do things that are very rash and brash and foolhardy, kind of crazy even, or be lacking. Actually, not only go against fortitude by excess, but my fortitude can be there by defect too. And so I can be timid, too timid, and afraid to take action and do or say what should be said or done. For, again, the good reason. For the good reason that I, that I have, my faith, my hope, my charity, to stand up for these things. So I realize my fortitude cannot govern itself. It needs some kind of external input to kind of regulate it, to keep it on track. So it doesn't go overboard and doesn't fail me. And even my temperance. I mean, my temperance is my self-control over my desires for comfort and pleasures. And um, again, I mean, I may have the virtue of temperance, or want to have the virtue of temperance, but temperance is one of those things too. I mean, it needs to be regulated by something outside of it, something above it, because my temperance can go overboard and I can fast myself to death. I can abstain when I shouldn't because I need the nourishment. I'm sick, but I'm so temperate, I won't do that. Or I lack temperance and I overindulge in food and drink. <clears throat> so again, by excess or by defect, I'm in trouble. Unless there's something in me that actually is able to take charge of these things and guard them and actually put my justice and my fortitude and my temperance under the guidance of right reason, of right reason. And you say, well, what is this super virtue that is supposed to be the, the power that enables my in intellect, my reason to govern these other virtues and keep them from going overboard or underboard <clears throat> and make things actually turn out right or as well as they can be anyway. And um, if there's going to be a problem, it's not going to be caused by me because I'm actually doing these things rightly in, a, in the right way at the right time. I've got it all figured out how to go about this. And that is the virtue of prudence. Because whereas my temperance is to be found in my concupiscible appetite of desiring for pleasures of the world, my fortitude is to be found in my irascible appetite, which makes me fight for what I want, against what I don't want, and can be more or less. My justice, which can again be excessive or be not at all, you know, insofar as I, I just uh, um, want to just overlook everything and say no justice, everybody's forgiven, as I try to tell you today as though God had no justice whatsoever, it was all mercy. 
Well, I need, and that justice, by the way, justice concupiscence is uh, the uh, rather temperance is found in the concupiscible appetite, and my temper, my fortitude is found in my irascible appetite. So justice is found in my will. I have the intention to be just and render to everybody what he deserves. But what is the virtue that is rooted in my intelligence that should govern all that? It's the virtue of prudence. It is actually the application of my intelligence, my intellect, to be able to determine, based on the goal I have for my faith and my hope, my charity, my wisdom, that unites my intentions with God's, to know how to go about this practically and make things turn out right. It's not just good intentions then. I have to actually apply myself to living my life. And I have to live my life in such a way that my actions correspond to my good intentions. And so that I'm not constantly fumbling and making a mess of things, and sometimes making them worse than they were. We all experience that. We have our good intentions, and so many times we seem to make things worse and not better, despite our good intentions. And there's something missing. It's because for we have all the good intentions in the world, but there's something missing. And that is know-how. And the know-how comes from reasoning, being able to reason through and say, what is the best way to make this happen, to arrive at that goal? And it can involve things with my wife. It can involve matters with my children. It can involve matters with the family dog. It can involve matters of, of you know, just household bills. It can involve all kinds of practical things. And it always does, actually. The virtue of prudence concerns itself with practical things. And it's a matter of realizing my good intentions by knowing how to achieve them in the right way by what I do and what I say. And knowing also what to avoid, what path to follow, and what path not to follow. We have to be able to deliberate, to think this over, to figure this out, and then we need to decree to our justice and to our fortitude and to our temperance how to go about accomplishing this purpose. And we say, okay, we see our Lord having this virtue of divine prudence, and everything was perfectly ordered in him. But we see in us it's not perfectly ordered. We see my concupiscence, and my irascible appetite, sometimes they don't go together too well. My, concupis my concupiscible appetite wants comfort and ease. My irascible appetite wants to fight. And so I find even with myself, I find a kind of conflict going on. And then I find in my will a desire to be just, but I also want to give in to my anger, my fortitude, over being overwrought as it is because of pride. That's not helping matters. So, but I also want to be just, but I have my concupiscence, which tells me, hey, you know, you want these things for yourself so you can enjoy life, right? And uh, there's this conflict that's going on in us. And it's like these, it's like a bunch of unruly children. It's like we're a bunch of unruly children, almost possessed by these unruly children. And, I said, and how, do we, how do we get order? How do we make order out of this? You sometimes, you parents, you, you know it's not the easiest thing to do to get your children calm, quiet, get their attention, so you can speak to them thoughtfully, 
<clears throat> they're actually listening to you and taking you seriously, hey, when their concupiscible appetites and when their irascible appetites are busy, and they might be little kids, but they got them, they got irascible appetites, they got concupiscible appetites, they've got these things at work. And they have to deal with them, and you do as a parent, have to deal with this. And you know, it's not always the easiest thing to do. Anybody know what I mean? From personal experience? Okay. So, uh, imagine, you know, in your own, in yourself, you have these things going on, and you have these appetites, and you have this, this will going on, which is kind of being bullied by your irascible appetites, and then you got your pride on top of it all, messing everything up, and kind of biasing everything a certain way. Well, in order to call everything to order, you have to pick up that gavel, and you have to bang it down on the bench, and you have to say, order in the courtroom, order in the courtroom. And you need the virtue of prudence to be able to do that. But what you're doing is you're governing yourself. You're taking control of your own appetites and of your own will. And you're placing them now under the control of your intelligence. And that is what you're doing. You're, you're going to make these things conform to right reason. That's what prudence does. Uh, there were a lot of other things I wanted to go into the etymology of the word. I wanted to go into the history of the philosophers and so on about it. But the question still is going to come down to, and you know, we can't go through a course, uh, you know, we can't go through the Nicomachean epic, ethics of uh, Aristotle. We'll save that for some other time. But the ultimate question is going to come down to how can I do that? I mean, I'm a human being. I've got original sin. Our Lord did not. He came to do the Father's will with perfect prudence. And how can I ever possibly have that control and be able to govern myself in this way? And the answer is very simple. Because not only can you work at this yourself as an acquired virtue, you can acquire prudence from experience and effort of your own. But you're not on your own. That's the good news. You're not on your own because God wants to give you that virtue. He wants to give it to you. He wants to infuse it in you. He wants the Holy Ghost to do that. He wants the Holy Ghost to infuse that in you. So that you actually have these gifts from the Holy Ghost of, of counsel and understanding leading to wisdom that enable you to, to see what he sees, that enable you to see the way, to see what is the right thing to do, and what is the right way to do it, what is the right thing to say, and what is the right way to say it, when it is best not to say anything at all, for that matter, but just be silent. All these things that our Lord showed you so effectively in his life in the Gospel, Yes, you can do. The Holy Ghost wants to give you that knowledge and that understanding. He wants to give you the prudence necessary to handle things at the right time in the right way. Because, again, you have the faith and you know the right reasons. So he wants to enlighten you with that. So you, you go to him and you pray and you ask for this. This is one, one reason why this is, prayer is so important. I wanted to definitely get into that question of what they call mental prayer. Because it's so, so important for us to actually 
give our minds and our hearts to God, give our attention and our affection to God every day of our lives. The book you have talks about praying always, tells you how to do that in a general way. But it's necessary to take the time each day to apply our minds and our hearts to God, exclusively to God, because it is, it is through that that he actually works his wonders in our souls. And when we do pray, that mental prayer, we might not even be aware of anything happening to us. Now we all know what a battery charger is. We all use power tools, except the Luddites among us who still insist on using the old hand drills and all the rest. I don't know if we have any of those. More power to you, so to speak, if you do. <laughs> but we all know what it is to use power tools, and we all know what it is to have these batteries, and they have to put in the chargers and let to sit for a while. And uh, we know what that is to have to recharge those batteries. And it's a poor analogy, I know. But, you know, we, we need to recharge too. And the way we recharge is by mental prayer. That is taking ourselves offline, as it were. You take it off the drill, you take it off the uh, impact driver, you take it off the, you know, the, the handsaw or whatever else, and you put it in that charger for a certain amount of time, because if you don't, it's going to have no power, it's going to be useless. Well, we have to do that. We all have to do that. And we go to the source of all power, and that isn't God himself. So it's like recharging our minds and our hearts, but recharging with the power that only God can give. That's why that mental prayer is so indispensable for anybody who really wants to save his soul, and anybody who wants to get it right. Anybody who wants to not only have good intentions, but actually do something about them and make those good intentions come to pass and realize them to accomplish them really needs that time with God in mental prayer and that means he's got to disengage from all the tasks at hand and he's simply got to in a sense place himself in that charger which is God's hands he's got to put himself not only in God's hands, he's got to put himself in the mind of God. By being mindful of God, and being mindful of God, being mindful of him. He's got to think about that. Actually be mindful of God, not just that, oh, God's here, God's here, God's everywhere. It's not a general thought that, oh yeah, God is everywhere. It's a matter that I am deliberately placing myself in connection with my mindfulness of God's mindfulness of me. I am aware of God's awareness of me, and I make that connection. I make that connection with him. I am aware of his awareness. I am aware of his awareness of me. And I, we actually make that kind of eye contact, spiritual eye contact in a way. And when we do that, the next step, of course, is to follow that up with that act of love. And that act of love actually holds that. You know, when you have someone you love, as you certainly do, and you see them, and you give them your attention, and you make eye contact with them, uh, there is a love, when you're aware of their love for you and your love for them, there's this bond that holds you there. 
It wants to hold you there with them, even if it's only for a moment. Still, it does. So there's a certain bond there that fuses there and holds you there. Um, every day we see people we love and they see us. That's not the same thing, though. But when we actually see them lovingly with a sense of our love for them, and we see them looking at us, and, with, and we see in their eyes a look of love for us, there's something that bonds together for a minute, for a second, whatever it is, however it is. And we need to do that with Almighty God. We need to have that sense, I guess, of, of that connection. And that is for us, like our recharger. Uh, the recharger, everything good in us. Um, so uh, I do encourage you, I, I have more to say about this, but I'm, I just don't want to uh, run out of time and not be able to say anything. Um, this is extremely important. So I, I said to you that prudence requires us to do the right thing in the right way in order to follow through on our faith and our hope and our love for God and have any effectiveness in living the life of a good Catholic man, gentleman, husband, father. We need that. We have to have that. Therefore, prudence in order to put into effect the good intentions we have that are given to us by our faith and our hope, and our love, as well. So I, I say that prudence requires us to use the proper means. Prudence is already given the conclusion or the purpose. Now prudence, that, that intelligence of ours that God has given us, means, okay, you figure out how you're going to do this. This is your task. How are you going to accomplish this? Of ourselves, we'll make a lot of mistakes. With God's guidance, we won't. We'll get it right. And that's why the virtue of prudence is so important. Infused by God. Learning it, we have to learn the hard way. We still have to try. But to have it infused by God, it goes very high above all human efforts. Accomplishes so much more. So what are the means that our Lord has given us to sanctify our souls? If our purpose is obtaining everlasting life for ourselves and our loved ones, the question then is, that's the task, how do we do it? And we see that prudence tells us, well, look at the means that Christ has given you. I mean, the Savior gave you the means to attain this end. What are those? And you say, well, I'll tell you, I mean, primarily, of course, the Mass and the sacraments. It's, it's through these that he gives his grace. And you say, and you, say a, you get an A-plus on your religion exam. That's exactly right. But knowing that and being able to say that and getting the A-plus in your religion exam still doesn't make you a saint. You have to not only know it, again, you have to do it. You have to do it. And... Uh, this starts with our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. But let's face it, the power of all the sacraments is the power of Christ at work. And in the Blessed Sacrament, there he is, himself, personally, present there. No less than the Redeemer, 
himself, the very Son of God and Son of Man, present there in the Blessed Sacrament as God and as man. And he's there for you. He's that accessible to you. I mean, how often could you have an, an audience with any important person? Can you just call up a celebrity and say, hey, I want to meet you for coffee? Celebrity in the eyes of the world would just snub you and say, who are you? you know, Go away, leave me alone. Call the police and say, get rid of this stalker. Uh, you know, could you call the president and say, I want to talk to you? Well, that's not an easy task, you know, to, to have a conversation with. Well, never mind. Um, <clears throat> in any case, there are all kinds of problems of trying to, to access, gain access to important people on earth, you know, because you're just not worthy. You're not worthy of their time. You're not worthy of their effort. But here you have the creator of all, you and them. We have Almighty God Himself, the very fashioner and creator of the entire universe, and everything in it for your benefit, so you can see and wonder, and even see and wonder about the things you can't see. <laughs> but it's there, you know, and you think how immense this God must be to create out of nothing all of this, just so that I could know his immensity and his greatness and his love. And yet, you have access to him. He is so accessible to you that you might despise him and push past him, brush him aside, saying, well, he can't be that important. I mean, look how accessible he is. So nobody who's that important so much more important than me, that I am, could really make himself so close to me, why would he do that? And so mankind brushes him aside, the God who made them, in looking for preferment from his very miserable creatures, and often for very miserable reasons. What's an audience with a king? What's an audience with a president or a prime minister? was an audience with anyone on earth, anyone, any billionaire. What's an audience worth for that? What is that worth, really? It's all dust. It's all dust. It's all dust. But in the Blessed Sacrament, we have our Lord himself present there, appealing to us, calling out to us, and asking us to please come to him. You know, there are pathetic scenes in the gospel where our Lord is surrounded by crowds of people and there's some poor outlier person like a leper or a lame person or a blind person. And he asks, well, what's happening? What's all this uh, uproar about? And they say, oh, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And we hear that, blame, that poor blind or lame person start crying out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And they try to stop him and silence him, and he won't be silenced. He just keeps shouting and shouting louder and louder, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd wants to rush by and carry our Lord off, because they've got his attention, they don't want to give it up, and they don't want him to be bothered, because he's too important, right? And as long as they're tied up together with him, they're important too. That's how Judas felt. 
as long as he was with Jesus, he was an important man. And then when Jesus said things and did things to make the crowd turn away from him, Judas began to have second thoughts how this important man, Judas Iscariot, was going to save his skin and come out of this with something to show for it. Well, that was the attitude. And what did our Lord do? He stopped everything. And he went to the person in need to give them relief. Well, here we have a situation today where, as it were, the crowd is going by and our Lord is on the outside. And he's the one who's crying out to us. Like the poor and the blind and the lame man crying out to Jesus of Nazareth. Now we've got Jesus of Nazareth on the outside of the crowd in the world today. And he is in a very kind of pathetic way looking at it. The pathos is with us though. Uh, trying to call out to us to come to him and to receive the blessings for our blindness and our lameness and our leprosy and he's pleading with us to come to him and so in a sense the gospel has been reversed in that regard today and it's so sad to see that is what our Lord says isn't it when he holds his heart up before St. Mary uh, Margaret Mary and he says to her behold the heart which is so loved mankind and is rewarded with so much forgetfulness negligence and contempt those three things we should remember them forgetfulness negligence and contempt, forgetfulness means they don't even think about him. Negligence, they do think about him and they can't be bothered. Contempt, they think about him and they can't be bothered only to make, him, uh, make a kind of a sneer at him and reject him, despise him. Those three things. That's what he says, how the world greets him and worldly people. So yes, our Lord really is like in the position of that person who long ago was crying out for him to come to them so they could be healed. But here he's crying out to us because he wants us to come to him so we can be healed and we won't have it. So when we have our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, we find him having come so close to us that we kind of miss we kind of miss the point we miss his point we miss the wonder of it all and what moves him to choose this that he has chosen this way he's chosen this way to accomplish a purpose of his own and here we have again divine prudence that motivates him to choose this way to come to us here and now in the blessed sacrament at the same time, enabling him to put in front of us his own sacrifice of Calvary by the consecration of his body and his blood. He accomplishes both these things in this one way. Stroke of genius? That was divine genius, really. God have mercy on us if we miss the point. If the crowd wanders by and leaves him behind and wants nothing to do with him. He's just not important enough to be worthy of our time. So here we have what our prudence as Catholics would tell us, embrace the means that God has given to us at such great cost to himself 
He continues to be in the Blessed Sacrament and continues to be abused by mankind and the world. And all for the sake of those, well, very few, who will discover him there and rejoice to discover him and actually love him and find their happiness in him and with him. That's what our faith teaches us. If we really do believe this, then wouldn't prudence require us to actually follow through and do something practical about this? Use this means. And in the process of using this means of his divine presence here in the Blessed Sacrament, also to turn our attention and our affection to him there in prayer each day. Now I said there, there's another, there's a third gift from God that I wanted to talk about. And it is already 8.35, so I've talked for 50 minutes already, which is actually five minutes longer than I wanted to talk. Um, the, third, the third great gift that God has given to us that expresses a kind of motherly love for us, in a sense, that is the love of life that needs to be protected, that third great gift is actually the angels. The angels themselves are a gift from God. Now, God did not create them for us. God created the angels for himself. God created the angels to share his goodness and his joy. So he wanted to convey to the angels the ability to know him and love him and to rejoice in him. Okay? So he wants their good, but ultimately God always needs to think in terms of the greatest good of all, and that is himself. And he would be dishonest and he wouldn't be God if he didn't acknowledge that and, 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 and take that as true. And so ultimately God has to act on behalf of himself all the time as the greatest good, as the supreme good, it's only right. That's the order even of the divine being of God. It's not a matter of pride or self-centeredness, quite the contrary. God is not a creature. He is the creator. And it wouldn't be right for him to abandon that or forfeit in any way that role, that dignity. Quite the contrary, it would be a failing and a fault, and God has no fault and failing. It would be blasphemy to say so. So God does, as the supreme good, want to share the good. Uh, the old philosophers put it this way, bonum est diffusivum sui. Goodness, the good, is diffusive of itself, meaning the good wants to share itself. That's what goodness does. And so it is with God in a supreme degree. So God created the angels, not for our sakes. And yet, having created the angels, he does give them us for his charges. He does place us under their protection. In a sense, he has tasked the angels with caring for us. You go back to the book of Genesis. You start reading the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Okay? And you keep reading, 
And you don't find any reference to the creation of the angels. Although St. Augustine says that when, again, the statement, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, then in a broader sense, it could refer to the creation of the angels uh, happening right at the very beginning. But the fact is, in the book of Genesis, the very first angel we meet anywhere in divine revelation is slithering into the garden in the form of a snake. That's our introduction to the angels in the book of Genesis. And the next time we encounter angels is when we find the cherubim. Yeah, not just cherub, cherubim, cherubs, plural, with the flaming sword placed at the entrance to the garden to keep us out. And so the first two times we encounter angels in the, in the book of Genesis, in, in the uh, sacred scripture, in divine revelation, is angels who in a sense are our adversaries. Uh, the one angel who is the great adversary because he is the Satan, the accuser, the one who makes us guilty and wants us to share his guilt and his condemnation. And then we find the angels who, because now we are sinners, now he, that angel, those angels have set their face against us because now we've made ourselves enemies of God. And so that angel stands there with that flaming sword and will not let us pass. Although we keep trying to create our own paradise here, we find we make very poor gods and we cannot create very good heavens. Quite the contrary. And yet we find the word angel, just type in the word angel, do a search for that. You'll find just the word angel appears in sacred scripture 228 times in the English translation of the Douay Reims Bible. And, you know, you think about it 228 times, that spreads out evenly throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. No, it doesn't. As a matter of fact, I was surprised to find this out, that of the 228 times angels are spoken of as angels, 50 of those times, I mean, we're talking about more than 20%, we're talking about more than one-fifth of all the mentions of all the angels in the Bible are in the one book of the Apocalypse, what they call the book of Revelation now. 50, 50 times the angels are mentioned in the book of the Apocalypse. And that would give one pause to think that perhaps the angelic involvement here with us will be intensified as time goes on and will become very intense in the last times. And again, so I guess that makes sense, right? Because if you think about the last times and the, the chains of hell being disrupted and the powers of hell wandering the world. I mean, let's face it, we pray the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel. We talk about uh, God casting into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who wander through the world seeking the ruin of souls. So we know they're there, obviously. They are there. We are well aware of it. But in the last times, there will be such an outpouring from the abyss of hell of these, these, these devils and the demons, devils being fallen angels, demons being condemned souls of men, that we would expect the angelic powers here on earth 
even as the bad angelic powers are exerting themselves, we would ex expect the good angelic powers to be asserting themselves also, more so. So that might be one explanation as to why it is true that uh, the angels are mentioned so often, continually, in the book of the Apocalypse, and why they will have such a role here. You know, every one of us prays daily to our guardian angels. And we pray to, to thank our guardian angels for their services. We pray to request their services for the present and for the future. We also address ourselves to the guardian angels of our loved ones. And we ask God to guide and protect those whom we love, those whom he's blessed us to know in this world. Notably our children, grandchildren, our parents, our siblings. What does our Lord say? Our Lord says in St. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, verse 10, I'm sorry, Matthew 18, verse 10, see that you despise not one of these little ones. They had just brought the children to him for his blessing. Whereas others were trying to keep them away, as you know. And our Lord says, Seize that you despise not these one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So he's talking about angels actually assigned to these children. Angels who actually have the beatific vision in heaven and whose attention therefore the angel's attention has both the sight of God in heaven and the sight of these little children here on earth and the angel's attention can actually comprehend well can actually embrace both the sight of God in heaven in the blessed vision of God and the sight of these angel, these children and care for them. So this is what our Lord is actually saying. We associate angels with the innocence and purity of heart of little children. After the words of our Lord himself warning us against giving scandal to God's little ones. In fact, you know, angels have been in every, every form of religion, every form of religion, from the very beginning of time, recorded time, every single culture and every single civilization has had its depictions of angels. They've been well aware of these angelic spirits. No doubt about it. They are universal in all of the ancient beliefs. It's almost as though our human race descended from Adam and Eve and never lost the awareness that there were these angelic spirits created with us, who were very much involved with us, for good or for evil. Everyone always, every civilization has a record of them. Usually they are depicted as fearsome and powerful. And when you think, well, mankind found itself under the sway of these demons and embraced them as their gods, no wonder they see these angelic spirits as somewhat menacing. But they're there. But what our Lord says fully is this. He says, he that shall scandalize one of these little ones that believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone should be hanged about his neck 
and that he should be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of scandals, for it must needs be that scandals come. But nevertheless, woe to that man by whom the scandal cometh. And if thy hand or thy foot scandalize thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to go into life maimed or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thy eye scandalize thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee having one eye to enter into life than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. See that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And that's the conclusion that our Lord reached of saying that. And so it's kind of ironic what our Lord is talking about. Here he says, Woe to you who cause scandal to those who are innocent. And when I say scandal, I mean you're actually leading them into sin. You're actually enticing them to sin by what you do or say. That's what it is to scandalize them. Woe to you who do that. And our Lord says, you'd be better off, even rather than giving scandal, if they just tied a millstone around your neck and throw you overboard in the ocean, rather than to live and give scandal. And then our Lord talks about your hand as though your hand could scandalize you, as though your hand was offending and leading you into sin. And uh, when our Lord actually makes it the point that if you are leading another child, a little one, into sin, that's terrible. But imagine when your own hand, compare it to that, if your hand is scandalizing you and leading you into sin, and our Lord says, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter heaven with only one hand than it is to go into hellfire with two hands, and all your hands can do is suffer. And now you got two of them, and they're both suffering terribly because of what you've done. You're better off enjoying the joys of heaven with one hand than suffering in both hands in hell. It'll just be an occasion of suffering for you. And our Lord says about the foot, and he says about the eye. If you're, you know, you can give scandal to others, but our Lord talks about your hand, your foot, your eye giving scandal to you and leading you into sin. You'd be better off without it going to heaven. But, you know, when our Lord's talking about cutting off hands and cutting off feet and cutting off, plucking eyes out, he doesn't want you to pluck your eyes out or your hands out for sinning. His message is, you wouldn't think about that. You shouldn't think about doing those things, meaning you shouldn't think about sinning either. He wants you to get that message, don't sin. But when our Lord talks about these things, the hands, the eyes, the feet, and he's talking about angels, you realize He's talking about beings that don't have hands. Don't have hands and don't have eyes and don't have feet. But those angels see God in heaven with no hands, no feet, no eyes, but they see God in heaven. And so how much does this mean that our Lord would say, yeah, cut your hand or throw it away. Your angels are in heaven. They're enjoying heaven. They don't need hands and feet to enjoy God in heaven. If that would take you away from God, you'd be better off without it. If that would cause you more suffering in hell, you'd be better off without it. So our Lord is actually, in a sense, appealing to the angelic nature to make us understand the gravity of sin, but also the fact that angels in heaven don't need hands and feet or eyes to enjoy the glory of God. And so we ourselves should realize 
that all of these things we're given are meant here to serve God. And if we turn them and try to abuse them and, and make them things that serve the powers of hell, and that's what Satan wants, he wants you to put yourself at his service and use your hands and your eyes and your feet, your tongue and everything for his service. Well, you'd be better off being like the angels and not having these things and being in heaven instead. Now, uh, we have to go to benediction. We'll have the five uh, glorious mysteries. And uh, I'll lead those, but I'll also uh, hear confessions afterwards. But uh, tomorrow I want to pick up here, and I, I want to read some of the things that the saints have said about the angels to give us an idea about how we should think of them too and the place they should have in our lives.